Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624, or send your emails to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Do you ever find yourself sitting at your computer and saying to yourself, hey, I want to listen to a playlist? And maybe you're not into the Spotify or uh, streaming services on the Internet. Maybe you'd like to listen to some local music. Well, there's a great app out there called the QMMP Media Player. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. QMMP, uh, the media player, is literally a ripoff of Winamp, but a really good ripoff and an open source ripoff that works inside of Linux. So if you liked Winamp back in the days of, of Windows and want to replicate that experience, QMMP is a good choice. Now, let me tell you what I like about it. I've used a number of different software to try to tackle this issue, everything from Rhythmbox to just using plain old VLC. And uh, what I found is that QMMP strikes the perfect balance between a functional media player. So remember playlists and it will keep track of uh, you can do streaming stations. It will support Icecast, so on, so on, so forth. Um, but the interface is super minimal. It gets out of my way and it just runs in the background. And to the point that my workstation down in my uh, in my bunker, my basement, has it just has QMMP running all the time. And from time to time, I switch it from a local media source over to a streaming source. But it all works uh, in QMMP. Now, the program is written with the help of the QT library and also supports a number of different alternative interfaces. So if the minimal um, Winamp-like playlist is or Winamp-like interface is not for you, then you have a number of choices to choose from. There's a ton of different themes and has become my go-to media player these days. You can learn more at qmmp.ylsoftware.com. And of course, we'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Now, we have a special guest this hour. It is Steve Ovens. Steve Ovens is a member of the Linux community. I met him back at Southeast Linux Fest a few years ago. And over the years, Stephen and I, Stephen and Steve and I have become very good friends. And Steve has uh, spent a lot of time working with Home Assistant and automating his house using open source and Linux. And lately, he's starting to incorporate Mycroft into that mix. And so I thought, and, and he's also started going to be writing some articles on his experience. And so we thought we'd invite him onto the show and chat with him for a little bit. Steve, welcome into the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming back, brother. Good to, good to have you. So tell me a little bit, for those maybe who haven't heard of Mycroft, what is Mycroft and, and how are you using it? So Mycroft is basically meant to be an open source alternative to something like an Alexa or a Google Home type product. Right now they have what they call the Mark 1, and that was the original generation. It's been out for a couple of years at this point. And it runs on some fairly low-end hardware. And they're currently working towards releasing the Mark 2. So Mycroft is it's an open source product but it's also backed by a company. And so you can go and support the company or you can purchase one of their 
um, pre-built speakers with the idea that they put security and privacy in the forefront. And that's something that really attracted me to the project. Okay, sounds good. And um, I, I guess, let me ask you this. You have tied this into Home Assistant, so you're actually using Mycroft to control things through Home Assistant? Yeah, so basically, in the Home Assistant community, voice assistants are very prevalent. Most people have a, an Amazon device or they have a, a Google Home of some sort. And some people have a Siri because there is there is some HomeKit integration there as well. And you can do things like have the lights turn on and off or, you know, tell it, I want you to activate a scene. And a scene is a series of events that are grouped together. So for example, I want to start my movie scene. It puts down my movie projector, it turns the projector on and dims the lights. That would be an example of a scene that is kind of all grouped together in one thing. So you can just bark at your voice assistant, hey, start this scene. And then all of that automation kind of happens. How did you actually set Mycroft up? Did you purchase one of their physical devices or did you build it yourself? And if you built it yourself, what kind of hardware did you use? So I actually didn't buy the Mark I, partly because they don't have, um, at the time that I started getting interested in this, all the Mark I physical hardware has been sold out. And the Mark II is not quite ready for mass adoption yet. Like, there there have been some prototypes that have been released to some people, but while you can pre-order it, they're they're not shipping the Marks twos yet. So, um, to answer your question, I have run this on everything from a Raspberry Pi four to a brand new laptop and everything in between. I have a ten year old laptop that I use for doing um, some voice training because being open source, it still has some let's say some rough edges. For example, it doesn't really recognize my wife's when it's speaking to her. Um, about probably one out of every three times she tries to talk to it doesn't recognize her. So there is a function that you can train Mycroft to listen to specific keywords and stuff like that. So I have an old, old laptop. It's 10 years old, and it runs just fine on that. And it runs on everything between a Pycroft, which is what they call the the Raspberry Pi implementation, all the way through to... Um, really high-end hardware. How are you dealing with microphones? Do you have uh, like USB microphones that you have to place all over the house or do you have a separate Mycroft in each room um, or do you just have one central location that you go to, to to speak to the device? Yeah, that's a really good question. That one has been kind of a hard thing for us to personally solve because our layout is such that um, we kind of have three rooms combined into one just large space. That's just the way that's set up. So we've got a living room, a dining room, and kind of like a rec room, but it's all just one giant open space. And as you can imagine, a centralized microphone doesn't work really well in that kind of environment. So it's been a little bit of trial and error for us. Um, we ended up going with a couple of different uh, USB microphones and devices. So I have, like I said, I've got all of these computers all over the place. So it was really easy for me to sh just shove one, like the laptop sits with the lid closed and just the microphone uh, listening. There is a community project out there that will turn your Android device into a Mycroft listening device. Um, I didn't have any tablets available at the time 
to test that out but i know that there's work con constantly going for that so if you had a like a a tablet that you're going to retire you can just stick it on the wall or stick it somewhere and it uses a web socket to talk to you, your main interface of Mycroft. So all it is is just a listening device that passes something through a web socket so it doesn't do any of the processing itself. How what has the experience with Mycroft been like having used the uh, the Amazon lady in a box? I, you know, I have my own reservations about privacy, but as far as her picking up my voice, responding to the commands, it doesn't I mean, it doesn't feel like I'm talking to a computer. It feels like there is somebody on the other end that I asked to do something and that assistant does that thing. How has the experience been on Mycroft? So for me, the experience has been pretty positive. I have never had it fail to pick up my voice um, outside of being outside of the range of the, the USB microphone. Like, you know, if I'm 10 feet away, maybe it doesn't hear me very clearly, but that's more of the microphone. So from that response, I haven't I haven't really had a problem with Mycroft. What is really interesting is they're still going through this process of how do we get a skill development community, so all of the different abilities or um, programs that Mycroft can run, how do we get them to run and choose the right thing? So, for example, if I ask it a question and it doesn't understand, it might default to searching Wikipedia or... Uh, I built a, a recipe helper and the way that you there was some massaging you have to do for the trigger words because otherwise it thinks you want to search the internet instead of calling the local mm. skill that you built right and so there is still a an element of let's say trial and error that's happening and they're they're aware of this and they're you know the community is currently working quite hard to to address these issues how hard was it to get it to work with uh, Home Assistant? Was it just a, was it basically plug and play, or or did was there some massaging necessary to get those two to talk? So the Home Assistant integration, um, I'm going to use two different terms. So I'm going to refer to the legacy one, which is the the current one. If you went to the Mycroft Market and installed Home Assistant, I'm going to refer to that one as legacy because there is a complete rewrite that. Uh, I'm currently working with the Mycroft team on, and it's going to be completely different. So the legacy wow. one w is really easy to uh, to get up and running, but it's limited in terms of what it understands that, that Home Assistant can do. So, for example, it doesn't understand things like scenes. It understands anything that is basically based on a relay, so a light switch, a plug, you know, anything that can be turned on and off, it's really good with. If you're trying to trigger an automation or something of that nature, um, I think those weren't as well developed when this when the Home Assistant skill was originally written. So the, the Mycroft team went back to the board and have been working on what they call um, a common IoT framework to kind of solve part of that problem that I mentioned before about how do I choose the right skill to launch my uh, appropriate action because they're looking at it and saying well you might have home assistant but you might not have your hue light bulbs plugged into home assistant so when you say turn off the lights I need to be able to figure out am I going to home assistant or am I going to um, the hue light hub or whatever so there's a lot of ongoing work to make this happen and there's I'd say probably in the next six or eight months, there's going to be a huge rewrite. It, the rewrite has happened, but 
the integration part, there, we're finding a lot of bumps because we're trying to be backwards compatible. So what that means is the Mark 1 is on a previous version of Python. So Python is kind of the core that Mycroft runs on. And so in order to give those people the best experience, this new framework has to be backwards ported to an older version of Python. And so that's some of the stuff that I'm kind of currently working on before we can merge the, the rewrite into the main branch. I would imagine that the big reason that people go through the amount of hoops that you are going through to get this to work is from a security and privacy standpoint. Um, can you talk about that? Have you done any looking as to, you know, does Mycroft ever talk to the Internet? Does anything ever go out or does everything stay on your land the entire time? And, and what was that a factor for you when you chose a voice assistant? It absolutely was the main reason why I chose a voice assistant. So to answer some of your questions, um, there, and I go into this a little bit in some of the articles that I am currently working through on opensource.com, but um, the short version is you can change the text-to-speech engine and the, the speech-to-text engine. So they allow you to kind of, they, you can use Google or Watson or there's a various number of, of these things out there. Um, specific to different regions and all that. So you can swap in and out. If you don't do anything to Mycroft by default, it uses Google. But it proxies through the Mycroft servers to anonymize your data. And for me um, and my house, that was sufficient for the amount that we are using it. On my development laptop... I absolutely do not use that. I use what's called Mimic, which is a very robotic, um, synthesized thing that, that attempts to be on the device only. So you can you compare this right down to, I don't want this to go out, because the Mycroft team was very concerned about giving a device that you could put in, say, a lawyer's office or, you know, in a factory where you don't have internet connectivity, but you still need to be able to control things in whatever fashion. So they've tried to accommodate for both. But I want to stress that the default is to go out to the internet. So as you're going through this project and now you've actually gotten pulled into helping these guys and, and becoming a part of the project, not just a user of the project, um, you're actually in the process of writing a series of articles. Talk about those articles and what they're going to cover. So the first couple are just generic. They, you know, One of them's like, hey, this is the Mycroft project. And then the second one talks about kind of a little bit about the background of the jargon that happens inside the project. Those are the things that are really important when you're trying to ramp up. Like you have to learn... Mycroft uses this word called intent. It also has these two different parsers. And it's like all of this stuff I'm trying to make very easy for people onboarding because um, while I find the documentation to be really good, it's not start to finish. Like you can't just click through the documentation where it says start and then you get to the end and you have a full picture of it. And that I've found on everybody's documentation individual sections are written really well but they're not written towards the idea of being a run book like a step-by-step -step here you start here you end here and you've got a you know a working project so the goal that i'm trying to go through i'm walking through a skill that i made um, the skill that i made is that my wife wanted to be able to tell mycroft to add something to her grocery list and so uh, we're using an app called our groceries 
and I walk through in this series of articles how I actually built this this skill and with the idea of like here is the terminology here is how you use these different intent parsers um, you know and I wanted to be very clear because a lot of times when you're walking through documentation they give really clear examples for that section and you move on to the next section and they've chosen a different example and you're very confused about well you just told me that I was dealing with a car in the last example and now I'm dealing with a train and I don't understand how these two things link so I'm trying to in industry terms we'd call it make a run book which is you start from the top and you have a clear goal and you get to the bottom and you've walked through all of the steps in between kind of I've heard you say monkey see monkey do yeah yeah, that's the way I prefer tutorials. It's actually the way, much to the chagrin of my employees, the way that I insist that they do documentation. I shouldn't have to think about it. I should just be able to follow the steps and get back to where we started. If there's something missing, let's document it now, because trying to figure it out six months from now, a year from now, five years from now is going to be impossible. I, I have to ask, Steve, just because you brought it up, our groceries, tell me the story about this app. Is it just something that you haphazardly decided on, or is it a grocery app that has uh, some integration with Home Assistant and focuses on some privacy? your security so we actually really battled about which app to use because um, my wife while she uses Linux I would consider her kind of a, a non-technical leaning person right and so usability was key we tried Joplin and you know I ran her through every open source um, anything that I could find in terms of note-taking apps and she kind of came up with her list of I want to be able to do these things so we we started from what is my feature list and then I had to walk through and say okay what can I programmatically interact with because there's all these apps that meet this thing but I need to be able to either need an API or make rest calls or I need to be able to interact with this in some way um, and that's kind of how we narrowed down to uh, our groceries it it runs across iOS and Android it has a web interface the it uses JSON for its ability to communicate so once you get a token you can literally just fire off a string of JSON at it and it takes it and will update its web page so and you can also use it so like I have Android she has iOS um, we have the same app and I can see the I can see her list and as she's modifying it. I know Google Keep has a similar thing, um, but that was out because it doesn't really work well on iOS and there was no way for me to programmatically write to it. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's kind of how we narrowed down to this particular app. Is it tied into the shopping part of Home Assistant at all or is it totally standalone? We haven't really tied this into Home Assistant um, because we don't i couldn't see any value in putting it in home assistant right it lives on the app and it's literally at this point just meant as a, a kind of like a to-do list sure. sort of thing I'll, t I'll tell you where the, the 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 value is from my point and why i'm asking given the fifth degree on this particular app is because i told my wife when we put home assistant in that that was going to be the last place she'd ever have to go the last app she'd ever have to look at and i find a way to get all the other stuff tied into home assistant so if i'm going to roll out a grocery app now that's part of my deployment process i guess is i have to be able to tie it into home assistant and i saw that they have some uh, some shopping stuff i just haven't played with any of it yeah, I know a couple of people in the community that are doing that, and that was some of the feedback that I got when I originally shared this skill. Um, but again, for us, 
it wasn't that big of a deal. She likes having, she had her feature set that she really wanted, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what it boiled down to. Steve, where can people get these articles? Where are they going to be published? So I prefer to write for opensource.com. So these articles are currently underway. So there's two articles up. They went up yesterday and today. Um, And if you go, so if you go to opensource.com, you'll find the articles being published there. Uh, You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Linux Ovens, L-I-N-U-X-O-V-E-N-S. And I tweet out whenever I write something or someone I know writes something interesting. Uh, I think I have a grand total of like 150 tweets, so I don't spam people. I hate it when people just post incessantly. Well, we'll have a link to those articles in the show notes. You can find them at podcast.usnoahshow.com, although I did go to opensource.com and it popped up. You're right on the front page. So uh, very much appreciate all of the work that you're doing. And Steve, I think you're an excellent example of a community member in that you find something that's working for you and you don't just take it and run with it. You sit there and drill on and say, how can I make this better? How can I improve it? How can I give of my time and my resources to make it better? And that's very much appreciated. He is Steve Ovens and a guest of this hour, the Ask Noah Show. Steve, Thanks so much for taking the time to come on and explain what you're doing with Minecraft. We'll get you back on the program real soon. Thanks, Noah. It's always fun having a good chat with you, and thanks for what you do for the community. Yeah, you bet, brother. Take care. one 855 noah That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Carl calls from California. Hey, Carl, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. Um, I, uh, thanks for taking the call. Um, my wife has a, a ThinkPad T510 with Kubuntu 18.04 on it, and th- we bought this used a couple of years ago. It worked fine uh, for quite a while until a couple months ago. It started having a problem where the display freezes, and it could happen any time, even if there's just the desktop showing nothing running. It doesn't seem to matter at all what's running or what isn't. But the funny thing is, when, when it freezes, nothing changes on the display, but if there is a a video playing or music playing or something that keeps playing and you can control it with the keyboard. You can go forward and backward and that sort of thing. So the, the operating system's still running in the background, but the display is frozen, so it's kind of useless at that point. And the, the only option really for her is to do a hard reboot with holding down the power button and, and restarting. Um, I've SSH'd into the box and I've checked the temperature with um, sensors and that looks normal. I reseated the CPU with new thermal compound um, and if I SSH in and restart KDM, she can log in again and, and off she goes. Um, now I'm, I'm leaning toward it being a hardware problem. Um, and, but I wanted to check with you just cause I hate to buy, I mean, I have no problem buying another one if it's a hardware problem, but I hate to get another one in and have the same problem if it you know, turns out to be something with software. And I, I, what I wanted to know from you is if you can think of any way to more definitely narrow it down to being just a, a hardware problem. Yeah, uh, so I guess, uh, so the first thing I would do, if if, you're, if your system is locking up to the point that you're having to hold a, p- a power button down to reset it, I, I would start by just um, just going through like a regular system crash. I would, I would check uh, var log, uh, kernel.log. Uh, I would, uh, I might see, have you, have you ever looked to see if like, if, if dmessage is spitting anything out? If you can SSH into it, it I mean, you should be able to get some information as to uh, you know if it's the if it's a desktop environment that's locking up or 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 if it is a hardware problem. Have you tried ever plugging in an ex or you suspect it's a hardware problem? I should say. Have you tried uh, connecting an external display to see if it's if it's maybe something with the display or the ribbon cable? 
Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, I have when I SSHN, I can look at the logs and I see errors. I see, um, in, you know, display-related errors in in um, syslog, and, and I look at D message. And I don't see anything there at all. Um, but yeah, putting an external monitor on is a good idea. It's it's a little inconvenient because she's disabled and she uses it in a on a um, a tray over the bed mm. um, a good part of the time. So an external monitor would be difficult to manage. But I, I could try that. And and if it only locks up two or three times a day, um, so oh. it could be a long time going. You know, between between when it does it. So um, you know, I, I like I said, I just want to kind of get a little more confidence that it's actually a hardware problem, and, and I have no problem buying another one. <laughs> I just don't want two, and it's still broken. Well, I guess here's here's what I would tell you. I, I would tell you to start... Um I would tell you to start, if you have an external monitor, if you can do that, that, that will tell you something. Here's another thing you could try. Uh, next time it crashes, try pressing Control-Alt-F1 and see if you can drop down to a command prompt. And if you can, um, then you might have the ability to... Uh, to 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 uh to if if the computer works there it's not a hardware problem it is a software issue because if you can get back to the the um, the terminal window then it's something in the display manager uh that is that is causing a crash and i have had uh kde lock up a couple of times nothing quite to the extent that you're talking about at least not with anything that didn't have discrete graphics in it so um, but yeah, give that a shot. Control F1. I would also try connecting an external monitor to see if, and you should be able to at least eliminate a hardware problem. And honestly, uh, Carl, if I were you, if I woke up in your shoes before I bought a whole new computer, I think I would start by just reinstalling the operating system and probably just go with the latest 2004. You know, the the developers are going to continually be making updates and improvements to it. And so there is a, a high probability if there was a software bug, it has been resolved now. Um, and so I, you know, I would start there and then if that didn't work, yeah, I would go ahead and replace the machine. Yeah, I've, I have tried doing the alt control F1 and the display doesn't change at all. Um, I, I assume I can log in, but I, you know, without SSHing in from another machine and then check, see who's logged in. I, I can't really tell for sure. Um, but yeah, uh, I could, um, uh, would you recommend upgrading to 2004 or do a, a fresh install? No, I, I would do 2004, and I'll tell you why. We're going to get to this uh, later on in the news section where the, some of the updates that have come to the latest version of Plasma, which are pretty incredible. But I, I will tell you, I'm running um, 1804 on my personal laptop right now and 2004 on my work laptop, and I am very impressed with the amount of improvements, the amount of polish that has gone uh, into the latest LTS, everything from file copy dialogues to a better improved audio panel that keeps track of what audio device is being used and a whole bunch of other things. Um, it, it's really a pretty solid experience. The My only issue with upgrading to 2004, or my caution to you would be just make sure that in any of the software that you're using has been pushed to 2004 because I've run into that a little bit. There's a couple pieces of software that mm, um, yeah. either aren't available in, in universal images and, and haven't they don't have the PPA updated for 2004. Yeah. Okay. I can check that. That's 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 easy enough to do. Okay. Yeah. That um, that's a good idea. I'll I'll give that a try. And um, yeah, I'd I'd rather do an upgrade because I then I don't have to reinstall everything and configure all the um, you know her do her configuration. Although I know I can copy over the the home directory, but yeah, it's a little iffy sometimes. But okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll give that a try. 
Okay. That's a great suggestion. Thanks. Sounds good. Yeah, if it doesn't work, give me a call back and we'll uh, we'll see what we can do. Again, one 855 That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. You've heard us talk about Brave Browser on Ask Noah Show before. The browser aimed at privacy, allowing you to pay with cryptocurrency to support content producers with their exchange system called Bat. Well, they're in the news again today because a prominent YouTuber personality named Tom Scott has accused Brave of the Adblock browser of unethical and possibly illegal behavior by collecting Bat donations on his behalf from viewers without their knowledge or consent. Now, the way that I try to uh, uh, approach these kinds of situations where you have a lot of people on the Internet that are making a lot of noise about a about a given project or a, or a given entity, what I try to do is I try to take into account the size of the entity that is making these mistakes, and I also try to take into account their response. Nobody is perfect, and I think that we far too often are too quick to jump down someone's throat or jump on the back of a project who's trying to do good work and just hasn't quite honed it yet. So Brave came out and they said, if you're a creator who has a YouTube or Twitch account or owns a website, then Brave has a function that allows you to automatically receive gifts of Bat from Brave itself. And they say that you can uh, you can see the recent update following this feedback, which includes considering switching the default so that users cannot tip or donate uh, to unverified creators. One of the things that I think we is being overlooked here and, and really isn't being discussed is this. If you have a if you have an entity and that entity doesn't want to participate in your browser, but you still have the browser there and you have users that are willing to pay to not see ads or to sit through the ads. Uh, where does that money go if the if the if the entity that is creating the content doesn't want to participate? And I can see it both ways. On one hand, I can definitely understand how somebody could be sitting there and saying to themselves, I think I'm supporting Noah. For example, we don't accept I mean, no, we don't accept it. I just haven't never set it up. So I, I don't receive any bats if you donate them when you when you view one of the episodes. But uh, it, there's a lot of people that could say, well, I thought I was paying Noah and and I wasn't. My money just went into the ether. But the other way that you could look at that, right, is just, hey, they are funding their operation for those that want to participate so that they can grow the infrastructure. And at any point in time, Tom Scott and anybody else could say, I'll take the money that um, that is being offered. The, the, the response goes on to say, the quote, the Brave browser is designed to not know who you are or what sites you visit. Brave does not record users' browsing history in its servers. Brave does not write any personal data to the blockchain. Indeed, the only way a user's data is stored by Brave is if the user has switched on Brave Rewards or Brave Sync. If a user switches on Brave Rewards, they are assigned a wallet and all of their transactions are anonymous. If a user switches on Brave Sync, then they save bookmarks and passwords in an encrypted file on a cloud storage service, and the user keeps the sole decryption key. So... Here is here is what I'm taking from the way that because the the reason that this response kind of blew up is because originally the email back from Brave when Tom Scott wrote in was we can't refund the users. And that's what he had asked them to do. He said, refund all the users and tell them that I didn't give you permission to do that. OK, but if Brave is true to what it is they are claiming that they do, which is that they protect the privacy of users, then they have no way of refunding the money because they don't know who donated it. Uh, and and this seems to be what they're saying. The second part of a four-part 
complaint, I guess, about Brave from multiple different places is a tracking script. Now, the claim was that the Brave browser promotes itself on being uh, a, a browser built from the ground up to provide enhanced privacy to its users. And some uh, users found that they found a section in the code that shows uh, the tracking script blocker for Brave specifically had a whitelist exception for Facebook and Twitter. Now, you might say to yourself, why in the world would a browser that is specifically designed to protect privacy and uh, animosity or, or um, uh, to promote people to be anonymous? Why is it would they whitelist two of the most offensive sites on the Internet for violating privacy? And essentially what they came back to say was. According to the Brave browser, uh, this afternoon, users posted to, to Hacker News that the protection in Brave browser does not block tracking scripts from host names associated with Facebook and Twitter. Uh, this is shown by the source code for tracking protection service that contains a comment informing the tracking protection whitelist variable was created as a temporary hack, which matches both the browser, laptop and Android code. Now, here's the part that nobody is talking about. This whitelist variable is associated with the code in tracking protection services that add various Facebook and Twitter host names to the whitelist so that they are not blocked by Brave's tracking protection. Guess why they did that? According to the Brave browser issue that was opened on September 8th, the developers decided that they had to whitelist the tracking scripts for Facebook and Twitter because it was otherwise it would affect the functionality of the site itself. Quote, one of the Facebook features that would have been broken includes Facebook Logins. Okay. Okay. You can tell me all day long that this company is doing something shady by whitelisting two of the most offensive companies on the internet, and I will hear you out. But at the end of the day, nobody's going to use a browser that doesn't work. If you're that concerned about privacy tracking on Facebook and Twitter, here's an idea. Don't use Facebook and Twitter. If you're going to use Facebook and Twitter... I think the vast majority of technically savvy users are smart enough to say to themselves, self, there are limits to what these browsers are going to be able to offer me in terms of protection, because at the end of the day, this is what Facebook is around for. The, the second thing I took objection to is there are a lot of users that are comparing it to Firefox and Firefox's privacy protection. Now, here's the truth. The truth is Firefox does do a really good job of protecting users' privacy, and it's one of the reasons that we have promoted it so heavily on Ask Noah. The problem with comparing it to Brave, though, is this. Firefox was made 18 years ago. They've had 18 years to develop Firefox, whereas uh, uh, Brendan, is it Ike, and, and Ryan Bondi founded Brave in 2015. So you're comparing a five-year-old product to an 18-year-old product and saying that one is better. Well, no kidding. But here's the, the other part of that is Firefox isn't doing what Brave is doing. Firefox is doing what Brave is doing from the standpoint that they're trying to prevent tracking. But they're not doing anything in the form of trying to pay people for advertisement to to sidestep the way that the internet is funded, which I think is fundamentally a good idea. I think it's fundamentally a good idea to move away from advertisers paying for websites to users paying for websites. In exchange, users retain their privacy, users retain their choice, and when a user decides not to visit a website, the website is directly impacted. So the response from Brave to this tracking uh, script ordeal is this conversation is about 
a script loading not tracking. Loading a script from an edge cache does not track a user without third-party cookies or equivalent browser local storage, which Brave always blocks and always will block. And I need to I, I, I need to, to define here a little bit because they break it down earlier in the article, which you can read, by the way, at podcast.asknoahshow.com. They are defining two different entities, first party, uh, first party and third party. First party being if you go to Facebook and Facebook needs to collect information about you, they are they are begrudgingly OK with that. Where they draw the hard line in the sand is when Facebook wants to place a tracker for third parties to be able to collect your data. That's the thing they block. And they go on to say that we found blocking certain third party scripts broke many sites. So predicted on our cookie blocking and fingerprint protection, we hard coded some exceptions to ensure the best possible user experience. For example, Facebook and Twitter both contain widgets, which web authors can integrate into their online properties. These widgets aim to make it more easy for users and publishers to connect by allowing users to authenticate through Facebook or Twitter. Rather than creating and maintaining an account on publishers themselves, the exception list is covered by several news outlets that allow both of these widgets to set aside and operate on a leash. They can load, but they cannot access local data on the client so as to track the user. Now, I will give you a personal experience in where I used uh, Facebook login to sign into another account. That account was, uh, or that their account system was compromised, and because Facebook in their in in their infinitely larger budget than the site that I was using because they use that integration with Facebook everybody else's username and password was compromised mine was not because Facebook itself wasn't compromised so there is some wisdom and there is some value in uh in using an already established service that you already have an account in to log into other services now if there's a browser that has the capability of blocking uh tracking that comes from using that logon well that's exactly what I would want from the browser I'm not telling you to use Brave. I am not telling you that this company is for sure doing everything on the up and up, and they're not doing anything shady. In fact, I have reached out to Brave and invited them on the program so that we can discuss these things. But I want to be clear, nobody is ever going to get this right. Nobody is ever going to get this perfect. And you have a very small team that is competing in a world where Microsoft has given up Internet Explorer to go in favor of the Chrome engine. Firefox is hanging on. Uh, primarily because they are they have been around for 18 years and they've really focused on delivering the best possible product to the end user rather than corporate interests. So they hang on there. But that only accounts for maybe 15 percent of the Web. The rest of the Internet has gone the way of Chrome and, of course, Google with Chrome at like 80 some percent. So you're that's the kind of thing you're up against. And then on top of that, you have Evaldi. And you have Opera and you have all of the other little niche browsers that are trying to compete for the same thing. Brave is one of the only browsers out there that is doing something different. And do they have it perfect? No. Can I tell you with any certainty that these guys, you know, have good moral integrity, have a good moral compass and are doing the best they can? No, I can't tell you that. But I will tell you that so far, based on what I've seen, if you look at what has transpired Something happens, they respond, they give, a, they give an explanation as to their reasoning of why they did what they did and how they did it, and, and, and then it seems to drop. It seems like nobody ever circles back and says, well, here's what you should have done instead. That's the thing I have a problem. 855-450-NOAH, that's 855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. The last part of this issue is the, uh, 
the the Brave browser was auto-completing websites with a referral code. And this by far is probably the most legitimate of the critiques. So Brave has a Brave has partnerships with a number of different entities, and one of them was eToro, which is a online cryptocurrency trading platform. Um, that has since been rotated out for BlockFi. But the complaint was that when you went to a tab and tried to go to uh, eToro or whatever the one that they were focusing on at that particular time, it would send you to that site, but with a referral code so that they would get credit for you going there. Now, I don't know. To a certain extent, if you're going to be a browser that's going to focus on user security and user privacy, you just can't do stuff like that. And that needs to be default. And the fact that we're even having that conversation is problematic to me. Because if I'm going to Brave because I want to get away from tracking, the absolute last thing I want is to, when I go to a site, to have that site associated with Brave and the, and the Brave organization. I mean, that, that is a form of tracking. It may not have any personal information, but I, and that's what they say, but I think that is, I, I don't have a way to justify that, or I, I don't really think their explanation was great. But they apologized, and they pseudo-explained, quote, the autocomplete default was inspired by the search query client ID attribution that all browsers do. But unlike keyword queries, a typed in URL should go to the domain name without any additions. Ike wrote in a thread, sorry for the mistake. We are clearly not perfect, but we correct course quickly, he added. And again, I try to evaluate these things not just on what happened, but how the company responded when there was a problem. And it sure seems to me like this is an organization and this is a group of people who are involved in the community and are doing their best to respond to issues as they come up. Now, have there been a few more issues than we would probably like to see? Yes. But again, I've invited them on, so I guess we'll see if that discussion continues or not. Either way, we'll continue to watch the story and bring any updates should they become available. one 855 450 no, it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at com. 5.19 is out. I'm excited for this. They're calling it Polished Plasma. In this release, quote, we have prioritized making Plasma more consistent and correcting and unifying designs of widget and desktop elements. We've worked on giving you more control of your desktop by adding configuration options to the system settings and improved usability. We're making Plasma and its components easier to use and an overall more pleasurable experience. Now, they, there's no big sweeping changes, nothing that's going to knock your socks off, but little, little things that they have, that they've made smoother. So for example, when you select a wallpaper, it tells you little name of the person who created that wallpaper. That person gets some credit for it. And you know, if you say that's a particularly nice piece of art, I know where I can go find more of it. There's a completely new collection of photographic avatars that you can choose when setting up your user. They have done some work on the panel spacer. So for example, the invisible element that helps place components on the, pal uh, on the panel, you can now automatically center widgets. And Plasma 5.19 also incorporates a consistent design and header area for the system tray applets as well as notifications. GTK 3 got some love. Uh, they have a newly selected color scheme. GTK 2 apps no longer have a broken color scheme. And they've increased the default fixed width font size from 9 to 10, making all of the text easier to read. They've refreshed the look of the media player applet in the system tray, and related to that, they now, you now have more control over the visibility of volume controls. The task manager tooltips have also been overhauled, and the system monitor widgets have all been rewritten from scratch, and sticky notes get several usability improvements. 
Users that want more control over the file indexing process, that would be me, will appreciate the new configurable file indexing option for individual directories. You can also completely disable indexing for hidden files if you wish to do so. Now, let me tell you why that is particularly useful to me. I had an issue, I don't know, well, when I first set up my Ryzen box, whenever that was, and the, in, the, the issue was my whole system was just like super slow. Everything I'd click on, everything I would do is super slow. So I start the troubleshooting process and I find out Baloo is the thing that is, is just eating up everything. Okay, what is Baloo? What is it doing? It's file indexer. Okay. What is it indexing? Oh, it's indexing my NFS share. Well, that's a problem because there's, you know, 70 some terabytes worth of data on there. And I don't really need it indexed because I don't really want to search from Plasma for that. I know where all those files are. That's why there's 70 terabytes of them. And so I, I just, I, I, I killed the indexer, went back to what I was doing. I think I started it back up later and just let it run over a weekend or something when I was gone. So, so that it, so that it would work with the rest of the desktop, but the ability to go in there and just say, Hey, you directory over here, you don't get indexed. That's fantastic. Another thing they have re uh, they have redone the info center application with a new look and feel. And I have never used the info center before, but seeing it in the article, allowed me to go and explore it a little bit. And I have to say, I found it phenomenally useful. I mean, to be able to go in there and see every network device, by the way, I found out there was a VPN tunnel that was active that I'd completely forgotten about on the system. So that was cool. Uh, Info center shows you every single network connection you have to include VPN tunnels. Uh, it shows you all of the disk layout. So if you need to, if you're going to write that flash drive and you're going to DD something and you think to yourself, now, is that the flash drive or is that the, oh, Open the open the info center. One place also shows you how much RAM is in use, shows how much disk space is in use, so it shows what your processor is doing. It's a really good app and something that I kind of took for granted. So I was happy to see that that got some love. And I will tell you, having used Plasma now uh, for, I don't know, I guess since 2017, 2018, every time they do improvements, I find myself loving it more and more. And the, the you know, there, there used to be a little bug where the file dialogue was down in the system tray. And so you'd have to, there was this little like, half moon circle and it would just spin around you click on it and then you could actually see what the file progress was now there's an individual dialog box that pops up tells me where it's copying files absolutely fantastic and uh, you can take advantage of of, um, of a newer version i don't know 5.19 is being pushed to the lds but a newer version of plasma is available with 2004 and having seen the differences side by side again uh, going back to the first caller Having my personal laptop running one version of Ubuntu and having my work laptop run another one, being able to see those side by side has been very enlightening. FreeNAS is going to be, at least part of it, moving to Linux. To the surprise and likely consternation of BSD fans everywhere, FreeNAS vendor IX Systems is building a new version of its core product, TrueNAS, on top of Debian Linux. This week's TrueNAS scale announcement Builds on the company's March announcement that its commercial project TrueNAS and its community project FreeNAS would be merging into a common base. Effectively, all the NAS projects from IX Systems will be TrueNAS variants moving forward, with the free-to-use version being TrueNAS Core, the new Debian-based project becoming TrueNAS Scale, and the commercial project remaining simply TrueNAS. Now, this is interesting from a number of perspectives. The first thing that 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 I think we have to address is the why. And my understanding is Gluster FS wouldn't work on FreeBSD, so they made a version of FreeNAS that will. Um, the other thing that I think is 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 of note here, this opens up the possibility of Docker, and that's a big big thing for FreeNAS. The ability for FreeNAS to go from their containerized jail system 
to running any Docker application on ZFS on decent hardware with a massive access to a, a, a storage array that's very redundant and very uh, reliable. That's a big thing for FreeNAS. I also find it interesting that they they didn't put the time or they they chose not to to do to do whatever it would take to get these things to work on FreeBSD. Instead, they just moved over to Debian Linux. And I guess I'm and I'm reading into this a little bit here, but it seems to me that the progress on the Linux side is moving so much faster than the progress on the BSD side that at some point these enterprise projects look up and they say to themselves, man, we just can't afford not to be playing in that ball field. Now, I want to be clear. They're not dumping free BSD. They're going to run both. Um, it's just going to be one particular version of TreeNAS, FreeNAS, or excuse me, TrueNAS that is going to be running on top of Debian Linux. But that's a big thing. The, uh, the only caution I would have to IX systems, and my only concern with this moving forward is this. Don't lose the trust that you have earned from people. A lot of people trust what you, the product that you put out there. I don't think twice about it when I spin up a FreeNAS box because I trust IX systems and I trust FreeNAS. Do not screw that up in, in, in the search for the quote unquote perfect, um, perfect system or the, the more robust system. I'm glad that they're keeping the BSD base for now because frankly, it just works. And I think I just think that's a good thing. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Elon Musk led a private space company. SpaceX made history by launching a pair of NASA astronauts into orbit, an accomplishment that could upset the balance of the international space industry. Now, this historic launch also contributed to a shift in power from proprietary software to open source. By running the Falcon 9 rocket on a version of the open-source operating system, Linux. SpaceX isn't the first group to bring open-source into orbit. The International Space Station itself, where NASA astronauts launched the space by SpaceX, are now residing, reportedly switched to Linux from Microsoft's proprietary Windows operating system back in 2013. The unspecified version of Linux, according to ZDNet, runs on a on three dual-core x86 processors, a redundant system that keeps astronauts safe by making sure all three units agree before executing each command. ZDNet also pointed to a 2013 Reddit post in which SpaceX employees confirmed that Dragon and Falcon 9 both run Linux. That's pretty, that's pretty fantastic. And again, it exemplifies what we have been saying on the show from day one, that if you take the time to code something on Windows, or on Linux, you're going to get better results. You're going to get more reliable, more secure results by doing that work on Linux than you are on Windows. And we can see that in virtually every aspect of computing space that matters. When somebody goes to do something that they absolutely have to rely on, they are choosing Linux to do that. Intel made the news again this week with a new vulnerability, the new SGX attacks, uh, known as SGX and Crosstalk, both break into the fortified CPU reason, region using separate side channel attacks. Now, if you're not familiar, SGX, we covered it uh, a couple months ago. It's essentially uh, Intel's way of trying to encrypt information on the processor, but it turns out hackers can get around that. A class of hack that infers sensitive data by measuring timing differences, power consumption, electromagnetic radiation, radiation, sound, or other information from the systems that store it. The assumption for both attacks is roughly the same. An attacker 
has already broken the security of the target machine through software exploit or malicious virtual machine that compromises the integrity of the entire system. And while that's a tall bar, it's precisely the scenario that SGX is supposed to defend against. A quote from the researchers who discovered this vulnerability in Michigan uh, at the University of Michigan and the University of Adeline in Australia wrote, with the machine's production with the machine's production keys compromised, any secrets provided by the server are immediately readable by the client, uh, the client's untrusted host application, while all outputs allegedly produced by the enclaves running on the client cannot be trusted for correctness. This effectively renders SGX-based DRM applications useless as any provision secret can be trivially recovered. Finally, our ability to fully pass remote attestation also precludes the ability to trust any SGX-based secure remote computation protocols. And so, uh, you know, the, the story that we covered last time was about AMD and how they were approaching this. And the AMD approach was much better and was much better received by the community. Another vulnerability for Intel doesn't look great. And the fact that it is an SGX attack that uh, that's problematic. I, you know, at at this point, I can't see a lot of people going the route of SGX when AMD's alternative is reviewed much, much higher and doesn't have the security concerns. If you'd like to be a part of the program, you can send your emails to live at asknoahshow.com. Uh, Tim did that and writes in and says, I know a Tim for Berlin, Germany here. Longtime listener of your show. I have a Lenovo IdeaPad 530S. I'm dual booting MX Linux and Windows. The laptop has three USB ports, type A, 3.0 times 2, and type C, 3.1, and Gen 1 times 1. The two USB-A ports are being used for a wired keyboard and a Logitech mouse dongle. My question is, I'm new to USB-C, so my question is, what can I buy to plug into that USB-C port to give additional ports for external drives and peripherals and maybe an Ethernet connection? Do I buy a dock, a port replicator, or a hub? USB-C 3.1 Thunderbolt power delivery. Does it work with Linux and Windows? I found so many outline, I am now confused what to buy. They range from 50 euros up to 500 euros, and some say the functions do not work with all laptops. I feel quite confused by it and would like some advice. So here is the, here's the fundamental problem. Fundamental problem is that it's one type of connection, one physical connector, that is Type-C. On the other end of the Type-C connector, you can have a whole host of things. The most basic version you can have is a USB controller. The... Other things that you can have are you can put DisplayPort behind that. You can put, uh, you know, network. The most robust of all of them is Thunderbolt. And Thunderbolt is, a, is, is PCI access. It's like installing a card right into the system bus. It's just as good as if you had put a PCI card into your desktop. Um, so that's always preferable from a performance standpoint. However... When you do that, you run the risk of, of some compatibility issues. Also, because Thunderbolt is fairly new, there are some hiccups on Linux, albeit not very many. So the answer to your question is this. If you just want to get more USB ports, yes, you can use a USB hub. You need to find out if that connector on the side of your computer is just a USB port or if it's a Thunderbolt port. If it's just a USB port, the only thing you have the ability to do is plug in more uh, USB. You just use a regular USB hub. If you do that, you don't want to, if you can avoid it anyway, put Ethernet through that because all of that network traffic is then going to transition your USB bus. If it turns out that it is a Thunderbolt port, you have a couple of options. The first option is you can purchase a Thunderbolt dock, which will have 
its own USB controller. And because it's on the PCI bus, you don't eat up any of the additional US or of your existing USB bandwidth on your computer itself. It's going to use addition. It's going to create additional USB bandwidth through that PCI slot and through that Thunderbolt dock. If you're looking for a Thunderbolt dock, I highly recommend no matter what model of computer you have, I highly recommend the ThinkPad Thunderbolt docks. They work out of the box with Linux. Haven't had many issues with them. Uh, if you don't want to go that route, there is the ability to use just a USB hub that plugs into the Thunderbolt dock. Music means I'm out of time. I got to go. If that doesn't fully answer your question, give me a call back. We'll see you next week, Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central.